Corey Ten Boom famously compared God's providence to a tapestry, which, as it's being woven, seems to be little more than a mess of thread and knot. But when finished, and when it's turned over, it reveals its beauty. If you don't know that story or don't know much about Corey Ten Boom, I encourage you to come to our ladies' Sunday school class next week. I believe they'll be discussing her life as we wrap up that class. But she was not the only one to use an illustration like that, referring to how God deals with us and the way we can view things versus the way he sees things. Years later, the author J.R. Miller, not the one whom our road is named after, uh, picked up on this theme and wrote a reflection similar to what Ten Boom wrote. I want to share with you his reflection. And it's appropriate as we get into the Christmas season. He writes, One Christmas, a friend sent a flower pressed between two pieces of glass. On one side, the appearance was without beauty. It was just a blurred mass of something held beneath the pane. But on the other side, the full exquisite beauty of the flower appeared delicately outlined under the glass. The poet hung the token on his window, turning the lovely side inward and the more ugly side outward, so that those who passed by on the outside, looking up, marked only what he said was a gray disk of clouded glass, seeing no beauty, and wondering why a poet would cherish anything so ugly. But he, the poet, sitting inside the house, was able to look at the token and see outlined against the winter sky all the exquisite loveliness of the flower. And this was the poem he wrote about that. He says, They cannot from their outlook see the perfect grace this flower has for me. For there the flower whose fringes through the frosty breath of autumn blue turns from without its face of bloom to the warm tropic of my room, as fair as when beside its brook the hue of bending skies it took. But deeper meanings come to me, my half-immortal flower from thee. Man judges from a partial view, none ever yet his brother knew. The eternal eye that sees the whole may better read the darkened soul and find to outward sense denied the flower upon its inmost side. There is a side of perfect beauty in every providence of the Christian life. And there's also a side that is dark and blurry and even repugnant. To those who look at the providence from the inside of the home, sitting in the chamber of faith and peace, then it appears in all the colors of heaven and it's beautiful and lovely. But to those who stand outside in the cold winter and look at it, it appears without one line of beauty. Only those who behold God as their father from the inside of the house see the beauty of his providences. So in our text this morning, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna, he's going to present both sides of the flower for us. The side on the outside and the side on the inside. We're going to look at them one at a time. Because from the outside, the things that this church is facing is terrible. 
It's an injustice. It's wrong. It's evil. And yet from the inside, Jesus is saying there's much, much more going on here. And you have much reason to rejoice. So let's take those one at a time. Before we get to those individual providences, I want you to see something unique about this letter to the church in Smyrna. First, it's short, right? Just four verses. But there's something even more unique about that, and that this letter is the only letter that features only encouragement from the Lord Jesus. There is not a hint of correction anywhere to be found in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. The Lord has nothing but praise for this church. Now, why might that be? Well, we're not told exactly, but they happen to be one of the smallest and one of the most suffering of the churches that we find in Revelation 2 and 3. The Lord has nothing but praise for a downtrodden, small, suffering church. To a fearful, suffering church, Jesus is a tender and sympathetic shepherd, caring for his people. He's not a taskmaster whipping them in the midst of their hardship. And so they receive the shortest letter. People who are suffering don't have time to read long things. Suffering people don't need a lot of words. They just need to know that they aren't alone and that God promises to hold on to them. So in this letter, Jesus explains first the view of the flower from the outside, and then he explains the view of the flower from the inside. So we're going to talk about the pressures of persecution that they're facing, what the flower looks like on the outside of the window, the gray, ugly scene. Then we're going to turn it around and look at what the flower looks like on the inside of the window from Jesus' perspective and all the promises he gives them. And then we'll bring a few lessons at the conclusion. Number one, the pressures of persecution. Now let's look at the outside of the window first. The church in Smyrna is facing five serious pressures associated with persecution. We're going to take them briefly one at a time. Here's the first one. He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation. Now we explained last week and the week before, tribulation is a very, very familiar word in Revelation. It comes up a lot, and it refers to the entire period of suffering between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. I think of Acts chapter 14, verse 22. In this world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have trials, difficulties, persecutions, problems. But this word here refers to cruel, relentless, and grinding pressure, serious trouble, a crushing burden, being opposed and hard-pressed in narrow straits, facing various forms of difficulty as a church. Now, the city of Smyrna had acquired some notoriety for its loyalty to the emperor. In fact, Smyrna had a temple built in honor of the Roman emperor Tiberius. And loyalty was expressed at this temple by worshiping this statue, by sprinkling incense on the fire that was in front of it. But the Christians in Smyrna obviously recognized this as a form of idolatry and they wouldn't take part in it. They weren't going to offer any worship to anyone except Christ alone. They could honor the emperor, but they were not going to participate in worship services for him. And as a result, they were seen as unpatriotic, and traitors to the empire, and they were targeted for extinction. Secondly, they were facing poverty. We see this again in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. 
Now this is complete destitution. Having been viewed with suspicion by those in power in Smyrna, the church would no doubt have been shut out of the trade in the city. In fact, Revelation 13, 17, when we get to Revelation 13, we'll see that one of the ways that a beast state of a government oppresses the church is by removing economic privileges from them. And so they would not be permitted to buy and sell and make money. Jews and pagans likely would not work alongside these Christians either for fear that they would be incriminated along with them, and so they gave the Christians the cold shoulder as well. And as a result, these Christians suffered financially because it would not have been easy to be gainfully employed. But that may not be the only reason they're suffering poverty. It could have been because their stuff was plundered too. We're not told in this context, but we are told in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 40, 34, that this happens to Christians. That oftentimes people will seize their property, and in the case of Hebrews 10, they just plundered it, burned it, got rid of it. As, hey, if you're going to oppose us, we're going to oppose you. You're not going to have anything. So maybe that's what happened as a result of this persecution. Thirdly, they face slander. We see this again in verse 9. I know your tribulation, your poverty, and the slander. Now, not only were they poor, and not only were they suffering various trials, but they were suffering attacks on their character. They were being lied about. They were being mocked for their beliefs. Untrue rumors were being spread about them behind their backs. They were being misunderstood and caricatured. Fourthly, they were facing imprisonment. We see this in verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison. They were going to be put in jail. They, some of the people in the church were, were, were facing hard time in, additional, in addition to their hard times that they were already facing. And then fifthly, death. We are told that martyrdom was a real and solemn possibility. He says in verse 10, the latter part, be faithful unto death. So some of the, the people would be going to prison and getting out, and some of them would be going to prison and not getting out. We see here that persecution can cost believers a lot. It can damage our livelihood. It can rob us of our homes and possessions. It can sever families and destroy relationships. It can cost us our freedom and our health. And in some cases, it can cost us even our lives. Well, that's the view from the outside of the window. And it's terrible. Tribulation, poverty, slander, imprisonment, death. But that's not the only image we need to look at. We don't merely need to look at the flower from the outside with all its gray, bleak, Ugliness. We need to turn, turn the pain around and see the flower from this end with all its beauty and glory. And so number, point number two, Jesus is going to give them promises for persecution. And in this, we're going to see that he has tailor-made specific promises for every single difficulty they are facing. Tribulation has a promise. Poverty has a promise. Slander has a promise. Imprisonment has a promise. And death has a promise. So let's look at each one of those promises for each one of those pressures. First, tribulation. What does he say for their tribulation? Look at verse 9. He says, I know. I know. That's it. That's the promise. And brothers and sisters, that's all we need. We don't need anything else. If he knows... Now this knowledge is not just a 
I know cognitively, like I know all things. We all know that God is omniscient, that is, he's all-knowing. He knows everything. But this knowledge is not just a knowledge of the mind, it's a knowledge of the heart. He's saying, I know this. I am aware of this and I care about this. This kind of knowledge is the knowledge that God expressed toward the the burdened Israelites who were oppressed under slavery in Exodus 2. Listen to these verses again. Exodus 2, 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's the knowing we're talking about here. We're talking about the God who's got this situation in his heart. He understands all that is going on. Not only does he know, but he's giving us a heads up that we should know too. What do I mean by that? Sometimes we can respond to tribulation or difficulty in the language of 1 Peter chapter 4 as though something strange were happening to us. Like, I'm suffering as a Christian? What? And then we realize just how deeply the prosperity gospel is embedded in us by virtue of being Americans. I'm having a hard time with life following Christ. Something's wrong. No, everything's right. Everything's right. This is what we should expect. Jesus told us so. But he knows. And that's the promise that we have. He's aware. Secondly, for poverty, notice what he says. Verse 9 again. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Then he says in quotations, but you're rich. But you're rich. Now, what's he talking about there? They're not rich. They're poor. Oh, oh, oh. Let's be careful how we evaluate poverty and richness. You, you don't think that richness requires you having a lot of stuff, do you? No. He's not talking about material wealth here. He's talking about spiritual wealth. He's talking about the wealth of Psalm 4-7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their new grain and wine abound. I got it all in Christ. Contrast this with what we're going to see Jesus say to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.17. The Laodiceans might have had material wealth, but in the things that matter most, faithfulness, holiness, perseverance, love for God, the Laodiceans were bankrupt. They had a big bank account and were in the red spiritually. Conversely, the saints in Smyrna were rich toward God, were rich in faith, were rich in good deeds, and whose treasuries in heaven were full. This is what Jesus promises his persecuted people in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, isn't it? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you. Smyrnans are getting that. Persecute you, they're getting that. Uttering all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, they're getting that. Rejoice and be glad. Why, Jesus? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It could be said of Smyrna, what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.10. They had nothing and they possessed everything. They had nothing 
and they possessed everything. Why were they rich? Because they had Christ. And that made them infinitely richer than anyone without him. So he knows their tribulation. They are rich spiritually, even in the midst of physical and material poverty. Thirdly, what about slander? Notice what he says again in verse 9. The slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, how's that a comfort? He says, the things that they're saying about you aren't true. That's the promise. He said, at the end of the age, you're not going to stand before these Jews and give an account. They're not going to be the ones to whom you will answer. They're going to answer to me, and you're going to answer to me, and they're on the wrong side of history because they aren't telling the truth. As they slander you, it's a lie. See, the Jewish community in Smyrna evidently hated the Christians because they first hated Christ. Now, Jesus was put to death through the instigation of Jews by the hands of the Romans, the same threats that were facing the church at Smyrna. But the comfort that Christ offers is that these slanderous claims are false. These people say they're Jews, but they're not. Now, that doesn't make any sense. They're either Jews or not, right? Are they? Now, now think about this again from two different perspectives. It's the same way he talks about poverty. Are they materially poor? Yes. Are they spiritually poor? No. Same thing with this Jewish thing. Are these people who are persecuting these Christians ethnically Jewish? Yes. Are they true Jews? No. Because true Jews embrace their Messiah. This is what Paul says in Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. See, the Christians in Smyrna, they're Jewish in the truest, deepest sense not these who are merely ethnically Jewish. Juan Sanchez, pastor in Texas, says, Why such fierce opposition from the Jews? The Jews were jealous because they considered themselves, not these Gentile Christians in Smyrna, to be the true people of God. It was they who were waiting their Messiah to return and restore Israel, but Christians were announcing that Messiah had already come and was already restoring God's people through the new covenant that had been inaugurated by Jesus' death and resurrection. Ironically, by opposing Christians in Smyrna, the Jews were actually opposing their Messiah and proving that they were in fact not true Jews, not the true people of God. Instead, they were children of Satan because like their father, they opposed Christ and the true people of God who embraced Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Now the reason he calls them a synagogue of Satan is because they are so under the influence of Satan that they do his work of slandering true Christians. That is, they have been deceived by Satan and they were being used by him to get his destroying work done. This is what Jesus said would happen. John 16, verse 2. They will put you, that is true disciples, Jesus said to his disciples, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a sacrifice to God. Jesus said again in John 15, verses 18 through 20, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you also. So this is the comfort that he gives them. It's not true. You are my true people. 
they are a synagogue of Satan. Fourthly, what about imprisonment? What encouragement does he give them there? Notice what he says, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. See, I'm comforted by the fact that God can say that only when we have a God who is sovereign. Not just a God who knows things but can't do anything about it, but he says, don't be afraid what you're about to suffer. The only reason they should not be afraid about that is because God's got this. All this suffering that they're getting ready to go through is under the sovereign control of God. Now, he gives them two reasons why they ought not to be afraid. Here's the first one. Notice he says, Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Now, this ten days is a reference to Daniel chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. It's an allusion to that, what happened uh, in the first chapter of Daniel. And it's a symbolic number that just refers to a short period of time. He's not talking about ten literal days here. He's not saying, okay, week and a half and you're out. It may be that, but, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. And based on what we know of numbers in Revelation, it would be strange for us to ever think of them as literal when most of the time they're symbolic. So I'm inclined to lean symbolic with the rest of the numbers in the book. But you don't have to agree with me on that. You may say a week and a half. That'd be great. I'd love that. They're only in there a week and a half, praise God. But if they're in there a little bit longer than that, it's still going to be a short period of time. And Jesus assures them that it's only temporary. Both the number and the duration is short. That's an encouragement. But second, notice it's purposeful. See, there's nothing more hard to fate when you're facing suffering than knowing it's for no good reason at all. But Jesus gives them the reason they're going to jail. He says, behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. See, it's got a purpose to it. It's not just haphazard. The suffering of Christians is filled with the purposes of God and it will come to an end. Now, as you all know, brothers and sisters, suffering tends to evoke one of two different reactions in us when we meet it, right? Dependence or disillusionment. Suffering is disorienting. It contributes to a loss of perspective. So what possible difference could it make in their lives when Jesus tells them it's a short period of time and it's only, it's, it's got a purpose to it? Well, he's telling them that he's sovereign over it, that this suffering is under his control. How can it be under his control? Because of what verse 8 says. Look at verse 8. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He said, I've died. I've come back. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I'm the source of all things. I was already in existence when all things were created. I will remain in existence after all things have been made new. I transcend time, space, all creation. Nothing preceded me that might account for for this suffering or suggest that it's outside the bounds of my sovereign sway. Jesus is the one toward whom all things are moving, the goal for which all things exist, and the final explanation for all that occurs. Sufferers can look at their plight, feel their pain, calculate their losses, and still say, the Lord reigns. The Lord 
created this. The Lord is sustaining me in this. The Lord is directing all that I am experiencing. My condition is not beyond the scope of his authority. This is how Peter talks in 1 Peter 5.10. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's something we could bank on. Fifthly and finally, a promise for death. A promise for death. Notice again verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Again, verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, the crown of life is an allusion to a wreath of victory that would have been worn by a victor at the Olympic Games. This is, again, right in the area where early games would have been played. Everyone would have known what a crown of victory looks like. And the crown of life was a, was a wreath that symbolized eternal life. That, these, that though these Christians would die, some of them would die as a result of the tribulation and slander and poverty and imprisonment. Some of them would die, but nevertheless, they would live forever. Jesus would give them eternal life. And then he says, secondly, that they would not be hurt by the second death. Now, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, and verse 14 of Revelation 20, and Revelation 21, 8, all equate the second death to eternal punishment in hell. So it's a place of eternal torment who do not, uh, for people who do not know or love the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, these Christians are going to escape that death. They'll face the first death, which is the death of the physical body, but they'll escape the much worse second death, which is the punishment in eternal hell for their sin. They would escape that because they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, kids, older folks. Maybe you're here this morning and you're outside of Jesus Christ. I tell you this morning with great sadness that right now you are in a place where you will be hurt by the second death. If you physically die, that's a terrible thing. If you spiritually die, it's an infinitely worse thing. Did you know that if you're only born once, you have to die twice? But if you're born twice, you only have to die once? Let me explain that to you, okay? If you're born once, that is physically born into this world, as a human being, you have to die twice. You've got to die physically, and then you have to die spiritually because you were born in sin and you have to pay for your sins. And you'll spend eternally, eternity separated from God in hell. But listen, if you're born twice, you only have to die once. Now what do I mean by that? How do you get born twice? Well, you're born once by being born physically into the world. But you need to be born again spiritually. Because when you're born again spiritually, that means you come to Jesus, you trust in him, you ask him to save you, and he makes you a new person. He transforms you. He takes you out of that old kingdom of death and puts you into the kingdom of life. He puts his Holy Spirit inside of you to seal you for him, and you get to be with him forever. You get born again, and you only have to die one time. And that death is nothing. Because Jesus says in John 8, you're not even going to taste it. It's going to be gone. Some translations say you won't even see death. It's going to be gone before you can even see it. You ever been driving and something went by so fast you didn't even see it? 
That's going to be death for the Christian. We won't even see it. We're out of it before we know it and right in the presence of God. So may you be encouraged to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, kids. Don't die twice. Be born twice. So you only have to die once. Also notice, it says that they will not be harmed by the second death. That's a double negative. That's like saying, you'll never not be unharmed. Or you'll never not be harmed. It's, it's impossible that you would ever be harmed by the second death. You will not be touched. He who was once dead, verse 8 says, the Lord Jesus has now come back to life. And that's all we need to know. Because the worst thing that can happen to you, dear brother and sister, is death. For the Christian, this is as close to hell as we're ever going to get. According to Hebrews 7.16, Christ's life is indestructible. Death could not hold him. And since death could not hold him, it does not hold those who belong to him. John 11, 25 and 26, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's all we need to know. Every funeral of a Christian, we should be able to stand up and say, our brother, our sister is not dead. They aren't dead. They're dead in one sense physically, but they are not dead in the deepest, most important sense because they've escaped the second death. Now, it's worth noting and I just want to say this before moving into a few applications here. It's worth noting that Smyrna is the Greek word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint. So don't get lost on me here. I just want to tie, tie this in. We're, it's Christmas time, right? We're getting ready to get into the Christmas season. What does Smyrna, myrrh, right? Get it? Smyrna, myrrh. We sing about myrrh at Christmas. The only time we ever say anything about myrrh. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. What's myrrh? I'll tell you what myrrh is. Myrrh is a strong fragrance that's used to mask the scent of dead bodies. This is why Jesus was brought myrrh by the wise men. Because it was a symbol of death. They knew that he was born to die. We even sing a song about that that teaches us about that at Christmas time. Gold, a king is born today. Incense, God is with us. Myrrh, his life, death, his death will make a way. By his truth, by his life, will he'll win us. So frankincense, king. Incense, God is with us. Myrrh, his death will make a way. See, John chapter 19, verses 39 and 40 tells us that Nicodemus brought about a hundred pounds of myrrh that was mixed with aloes to wrap Christ's body for burial. But myrrh was very precious and very hard to come by. It was made from the resin of small thorny trees. Only when it was thoroughly crushed did it yield its pleasing fragrance. So in that sense, it's the perfect name for this church. Smyrna. God permitted Satan to crush these believers under constant persecution. And Christ's letters to them affirms the heavenly aroma that they are giving off. Tertullian said, 
We conquer in dying. We go forth triumphant at the very moment we seem subdued. The oftener we are mown down, the more do we grow in number. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. Brothers and sisters, you need to know that when we are getting shoved out of the center of power in our country. This is not any assault to the church. This is the way in which the church is pured, purified, and grows. We will lose numbers because false Christians will fall off. But true Christians will be refined and purged and powerful. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that while there's, this vir there's virtually no strong Christian presence in Ephesus today, as we saw last week, there still remains a small persecuted witness for Christ in Izmir, Turkey, formerly known as Smyrna. They are still there worshiping, and for all we know, they have been since Christ left. Christ, for all we know, has never removed his lampstand from there because they've never ceased to be a strong, persecuted minority that has held firm to him. Now, in closing, let me share briefly three principles we learned from this. First of all, I want to I call us to an awareness for the persecuted church. Okay? While we ourselves don't face this kind of persecution yet that does not eliminate our responsibility to be aware of and advocate for our suffering brothers and sisters around the world brothers and sisters over 75 percent of the world's population lives in a municipality or nation where there are severe religious restrictions today in over 600 countries christians are persecuted by the government and their neighbors Today, approximately 322 Christians each month are killed for their faith, 214 churches and properties are destroyed, and 772 acts of violence are perpetrated against Christians, like forced marriages, rapes, beating, imprisonment, and arrest. Jesus says, I know your tribulation, and brothers and sisters, we ought to know as well. Shame on us. If we can't name one of the 10 most persecuted countries in the world, but you got your football team licked. Shame on us if we know all that's going on in politics, but you can't name one thing that you've prayed for the persecuted church in the last year. Whose family are you a part of? Whose family do we belong to? Do we care more about our sports teams than we do the church of Jesus Christ? I'm not saying you, never, you don't listen to Kentucky Sports Radio. I'm just saying pray for the persecuted church once in a while. We're, these are our brothers and sisters, and we have biblical command to remember them. Hebrews 13.3, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. When we consider our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are being persecuted for their faith, for our faith, beaten, oppressed, imprisoned, tortured, killed, we are called to remember them as though we're right there with them because we are one body. Think about it this way. If your son, if your daughter, if your mother, if your father, if your brother or your sister or your friend was suffering because of their faith in Christ, how would you respond? If this was happening right here in Owensboro or in your neighborhood or to your own friends and family, would not the urgency of prayer for one another and unity in the body be paramount? 
it'd be forever fresh for us as a daily or even hourly need in our lives. You wouldn't need reminding because you couldn't possibly forget. Listen, if you drop something heavy on your foot, the rest of your body tells you so. Right? It can't help but be aware and react. So our bodies are designed to rush to the aid of the suffering part. And the body of Christ, his church, is designed to do the same. And so we must be aware. Secondly, advocacy for the persecuted church. Now, one, day to be aware, one way to be aware is to do any of the things that Pastor Keith had reminded us to do just a few weeks ago on International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Have any of us followed up on any of those things? It's very simple. One way you could also do it is just go to opendoorsusa.org, opendoorsusa.org, and click on the ACT tab. And there you can learn how to pray, volunteer, give, write a letter, advocate for the persecuted church around the world. Also, on the same website, you can explore the annual world watch list that reports on the most difficult places to be a Christian and why they're so hard to be Christians there. And I'll give you a hint. We have brothers and, a brother and sister from our own number that's serving in one of those places. And we need to know about it. This isn't hypothetical. We're sending missionaries to these places. We need to know what's going on. We should all be quick to sympathize and care for those who are experiencing suffering. In John Owen's Rules for Christian Fellowship, he writes the following. He says, Christians, if any members of the church lie under the immediate afflicting hand of God or the persecuting rage of man, it's the duty of every fellow member in the church in general to be aware of it and to consider themselves such sharers in it as to be instantly before God in earnest prayer and helpful to them by appropriate practical assistance in order that their spiritual concern in that affliction may be cleared. In other words... If someone is suffering, we need to know about it so we can pray and enter in. And that, of course, applies immediately to our own local church. Don't hear me saying this. I'm not putting, you, putting on you the burden for solving all the persecuted churches' problems in the world, okay? And that if you ever are not on a website for the persecuted church, you're in deep sin and you need to repent. You know I'm not saying that, right? This is, a, this is, a, this is an appeal for a greater interest, not an exclusive interest, Okay? That's all it is. But we, we would do well to know some things so that we can pray. Because, brothers and sisters, the way things are headed, we're going to have more in common with them than not. So we need to learn to act as the persecuted church. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And all means all, including us. No persecution at all means that we aren't living as godly a life in Christ Jesus as we might think we are. Ungodliness squelches persecution. Godliness provokes persecution. The church in Smyrna faced opposition for its allegiance to Jesus. As a result, they were kicked out of the synagogue, right? They couldn't go. And can I ask you this? In what ways are you currently getting kicked out of the synagogue? In what ways are you currently experiencing social isolation? In what ways are you experiencing marginalization because of your commitment to Christ? Are you experiencing any social rejection, any criticism, any ridicule for your life, for identifying with Christ? Are you seen as a little too liberal for your hardcore Republican friends? 
and a little too conservative for your hardcore Democrat friends? Have you had any friendships or relationships with family go cold because you spoke up for Christ? Have you seen, are you seen as judgmental by anyone because of your commitment to Christ? Are snide remarks ever made about you at someone else's dinner table because your godly life in Christ? Is gossip ever whispered behind your back because you refused to be manipulated or sacrifice your conscience before God? Are you silent in the classroom when you can be there? Or around the water cooler when others mock Christ? When anti-Christian voices speak up against Jesus at school or work or at your children's sporting event, do you remain silent while Jesus is decried and defamed? Would people be surprised if you ever spoke up for Christ because they're so used to you being silent about him? If we're honest with ourselves, on a subtle and subconscious level, the idea of comfort and security is so ingrained in our Western psyche that deep down, we expect to serve the Lord at a minimal personal cost. Deep down, we, we, we believe that. John Stott says, the ugly truth is we tend to avoid suffering by compromise. Our moral standards are often not noticeably higher than the standards of the world. Our lives do not challenge and rebuke unbelievers by their integrity or their purity or their love. The world sees in us nothing to hate because it sees too much in common. We mind our own business lest anyone should be offended or we rally to all the concerns that the world itself has and speak up with, for them with the exact same rage that the world has. We hold our tongue so that nobody's embarrassed or we shout from the rooftops the very things the world is shouting from the rooftops about. So we blend in. We look like everybody else. And it's worldliness. But we might feel ultra courageous, but it's worldliness. Bishop Polycarp, I close with this. Bishop Polycarp was an older man at the time, and he was, for all we know, put to death for his faith in Smyrna in the year 167. Polycarp, for all we know, pastored this church in the year 167. He tried very hard to escape arrest, but was eventually tracked down. And when he was apprehended, he was ordered to curse Christ. Here was his reply. Six and eighty years have I served him, and he has done me nothing except good. How then can I curse my Lord and Savior? At that profession, his abductors sentenced him to death. Wood was gathered and piled in an open square, and the white-haired old man was made to mount the large heap. But when they sought to fasten him to the stake, he told them, No, leave me thus. He who has strengthened me to encounter the flames will give me the power also to stand firm at the stake. And so the hymn goes, Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how great is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come, disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee, Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to me. Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise or sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station. Something still to do or bear. 
Think what spirit dwells within me. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Can you quit? May it never be. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you know us. We are grateful that you care. We are grateful that you have given us every promise suited to every pressure that we face so that we might know that we might be faithful unto death and that we might receive the crown of life. Lord Jesus, we want to ask one thing of you as we close this service and prepare to sing. We pray that you would be bigger in our hearts than anything that life can give now and anything that death can take later. Would you make yourself bigger in our hearts than anything life can give now and anything death can take later? You're worth dying for. You're worth living for. Grip us with your worth so that we can be truly courageous in knowing that you are bigger and better than life. Lord Jesus, it's better to die than to live without you.